I'm Chris Russell, and I want to welcome you on behalf of the Belfer Center uh, Environment and Natural Resources Program and the Shorenstein Center uh, to this uh, third and final in our spring uh, series on climate change in the media. Uh, we've had a lot of support from both Belfer. Uh, Henry Lee uh, heads the uh, environment program and he is teaching a class and will photo finish in uh, shortly. And Amanda Swanson has been uh, helpful in organizing all aspects. And from Shorenstein Center, Edie Hallway, who dashed out to take care of something as well. Uh, Alex Jones, uh, the director of the Shorenstein Center, is not able to be with us because of uh, personal matters. So uh, we're going to get started on uh, a topic that, uh, if you can see it, the, the cartoon, first the good news, we've shut down the coal-fired electric power plant in your backyard. And uh, we've got those uh, wind towers behind. Uh, this subject of techno-optimism and techno-pessimism uh, has its own controversies. And in our earlier uh, Sorry. Uh, we've been trying to make sense in each of our uh, sessions of this very confusing set of issues that we're facing. Uh, the first two we de dealt with uh, public opinion and the giant divide and skeptics uh, versus uh, the media and scientists. And last time, climate policy and politics covering conflict in the capital, Copenhagen, and beyond. And this time, um, I think we'll have some interesting controversies to deal with as well. Some of the challenges in covering technologies are a little bit different than both public opinion and science, as well as politics and policy. Uh, again, uh, with technology, we've got the complexity of the climate science and understanding how technology can help or hinder in terms of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. We do ha happen to have a lot of techno-optimism in the coverage by the media, uh, kind of the uh, new hope, no hope, yo-yo syndrome, and a lot of clean energy sources are over-promised at the beginning as panaceas, often covered by the business media, uh, and getting press releases from proponents of the new technology. And then uh, often techno-pessimism sets in, and the same technologies go back down the slope uh, when the critics emerge. And we'll talk a little bit t today about nuclear power as well, which has carried its own baggage for a long time. And then I think another important issue that will come out, out will be the numbers. Um, cost is not always emphasized at the beginning. The time frame, uh, these things sound like they're going to happen soon when they're not. And it's very hard to project uh, the roadblocks ahead. And then the trade-offs, as we have seen with biofuels, uh, later on trade-offs come up that were really not clearly presented at the outset. And all of these things inv involve choices. And then uh, there is the political element of all of these technologies. Uh, the partisan uh, side of things, there is a, I, I like cartoons, and one of the uh, cartoons that sticks in my mind has a donkey on one side of a blackboard 
and thousands of arrows and all different technologies and things. And on the other side is the elephant, and it just says nuclear power. So <laughs> these things have been uh, polarized in a partisan way. And then there are tremendous uh, geographic interests in all of these uh, oil, wind, sun, nuclear. I did see a story the other day that I thought was good that Houston is uh, now uh, taking the lead in alternative energy. So, you know, they are hedging all the bets between oil and uh, the new options. But it wasn't an accident uh, that both uh, President Obama and the Energy Secretary, Steve Chu, have been to Iowa several times uh, to talk about the stimulus bill, wind technology, which is very big in Iowa, but um, they haven't been to some other states that are less politically uh, important. And Steve Chu has been there so many times that someone was asking whether he was going to run for president as well. So anybody comes from Washington to Iowa, it's a political story uh, as well. And then uh, we are going to deal with some interesting controversies on this question of can we fix the planet's climate. And thinking about it, in some ways we're dealing with prevention. How can we keep uh, greenhouse gas emissions from going into the atmosphere? And then there are some experimental treatments on the horizon. And we're going to talk about geoengineering and a new book coming out on that. So our speakers, uh, we have Jeff Goodell, who is uh, a, the author of a brand new book. You're going to get a sneak preview of Here's the first copy, How to Cool the Planet, Geoengineering, and the Audacious Quest to Fix the Earth's Climate. He also wrote a few years ago a book that got a lot of attention called Big Coal, which is kind of the complement to this. Uh, he is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone, a New York Times Magazine writer, prolific freelancer. And uh, I'll mention now, because I'll probably forget later, uh, there will be a book <coughs> signing afterwards uh, over at the Harvard Coop, uh, if, for those of you who might be interested. So we will get a preview of the book, which is actually coming out officially on April 15th. And then we have Brian Walsh from Time Magazine. He is the national environment reporter. He is the author, a blogger for Going Green. And he wrote, um, among many things, the Time 2008 cover story that was noted to have a green border for the first time in how long, Brian? Uh, never. First time ever, instead of that famous red border. And it was the how to win the war on global warming with the uh, uh, statue of uh, Iwo Jima. And it drew a little bit of attention as well. And he covers clean energy. He also has a global perspective. He is a former Tokyo bureau chief for time. And so he, they will be followed by our own <laughs> Matt Bond. <laughs> oh, nice picture, sorry. <laughs> okay, Matt, yeah, wave your hand at us. Um, he is an associate professor of public policy, uh, co-principal investigator of the project on managing the atom, which he was speaking about <coughs> yesterday in this room, I think. And more importantly for our topic today, uh, the co-principal investigator of energy research development demonstration and deployment, known as ERD-3 uh, policy project. And so he will be giving his perspectives. So we're going to start um, 
with asking the panelists to come up and then Brian will uh, give the opening uh, comments and talk. Thanks very much. I'm really glad I'm here for the uh, the energy panel because if I had been there for the first one, I, I can't have another conversation about climate gate and the emails without wanting to kill myself, I think, at this point. So <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Um, about a month ago, I had a chance to look at uh, the future of energy uh, one more time. It was a great metal box, a little smaller than a shipping container, humming quietly in the offices of a startup in Silicon Valley. It's called the Bloom Box, or the Bloom Energy Server, if you want to be technical. And basically what it does is it takes in natural gas or biofuel, mixes it with oxygen, and spits out electricity. It's an update of a really old idea. It's a fuel cell, and even though it has a sort of cutting-edge feel because of where it is, it's also still very retro. I mean, it actually came from the, the research that the founder did on the NASA space program. Yet when the box was officially unveiled about a month ago, following an exclusive piece on 60 Minutes, the hype was just enormous surrounding this. Uh, at the event, you had former secretaries of state Colin Powell and George Schultz on hand for reasons that were completely unclear to me, and as well as one of the founders of Google, and at least they were a customer. Uh, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is of course not a man at all known for hyperbole, told the audience that Bloom had the potential to revolutionize the energy industry. Uh, that made me think back to another new company that was also going to revolutionize the energy industry. Uh, about two years ago, I visited the home offices of Nanosolar, which is a Silicon Valley startup that produces thin, thin film solar. Those are photovoltaics that are less efficient than standard silicon cells, but a lot cheaper to produce. Uh, Nanosilver claimed that its manufacturing process, which actually prints the photovoltaic material onto backing almost like a newspaper printing press, was so efficient that it could produce $2 per watt systems. And that would actually make it potentially competitive cheaper than coal. So, I mean, you, you hear that, and, and the, the hype initially is that, well, you know, it's just a matter of scaling this up, and, and you can finally really be coal on a price basis. Uh, at the time, the Guardian newspaper in London uh, reported that nanosolar could represent the, the holy grail of renewable electricity. And uh, two years later, though, the, the energy industry is still pretty unrevolutionized. And I think if we look ahead a few years, uh, even after Bloombox gets into the market, it still won't be changing all that much either. Now, I mentioned these two companies not to criticize them. I think actually that both of them have pretty smart technology with, with, with good uses and they are primed for success, uh, especially nanosolar, which has already lined up billions in, in contracts. But I, I sort of pointed out because I think there's a, a tendency when reporting on clean tech to really jump from one great green hope to another, really searching for that, that new idea that will finally solve this problem, that will revolutionize the energy industry. And it could be it's a tendency that's kind of built into all technology coverage. You have the breathless cycle of hype followed sometimes by disappointment. And I think considering the iPad's going to be coming out in about three days, we're in the middle of one of those right now. And, I know, as of someone who represents the old media that's desperately praying to the gods of Apple that the iPad somehow saves us, I'm really hoping it turns out to work really well. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's, it's true. In the, in the digital world, change can come unbelievably fast. I mean, just think of what's happened in the past decade, how it's changed the way we use computers, phones, uh, music, media. All you need, really, is in the Internet is one great idea, and it can make a difference and proliferate with the speed of a virus. But the energy industry doesn't work that way. It's, it's really huge and slow. 
You know, if you look at the International Energy Agency's projections, uh, you can see that very clearly. Right now, global demand is about 508 quadrillion BTUs a year. Fossil fuels, and that's oil, coal, natural gas, all the remnants of, of animals that have been buried a long time ago, make up most of that. And of that small proportion that's supplied by renewables, and most of that really comes from old line hydro dams. Now, if, if national policies remain changed according to the IEA, we can expect that global energy demand to increase by about another 40% by 2030. And though renewables are going to grow faster than really any other single source, unless things change, unless there's a radical change really in the way we use them, they're, they're not any more likely to change the trajectory of energy use than really an oar would change the steer, or an oar would steer a battleship. And if we stay on this route, as we all know, I think we'd be in line for global temperature increases that could be up to six degrees Celsius or more which goes without the saying would be disastrous. But I don't, think, I don't think people really understand the inertia in the global energy system, and that's possible because you know, reporters like myself haven't done a very good job of explaining it. Part of that, I think, comes down to a national myopia with the media. Because if you look in the U.S. and the Europe, uh, in many ways, coal, you could argue, is, is, is largely done growing, at least, as an energy source. I mean, Given tougher regulations and, and concerns over climate change, it's, I think it's entirely possible we might never actually see another coal plant, another new coal plant, at least, built in the U.S. unless it has some form of carbon sequestration. But then you look to China uh, and look to India and other major developing countries, and it's a, it's a very different situation. And it's their energy decisions that are ultimately going to be decisive for where the world's going and where the climate will develop. Uh, China consumes over 2.1 billion tons of coal a year, and we know that could double by 2030 if nothing changes. And that's really, I mean, to, to, to understand that, you know, I, I was, Robert Stevens was uh, giving a lecture just about an hour ago, and he talked about the fact that um, even if all the OECD countries were to reverse their, bring their emissions down to completely zero, unless you see change in the part of the major developing nations, we wouldn't be able to hit 450, we wouldn't be able to hit 500 parts per million. So it's really those countries that make the difference, but you, you don't hear that enough in the media. I think in some ways you have to actually be in a country like China, really experience it to understand the sheer power of the machinery of that economy. I mean, I worked in f for five years in Hong Kong at the start of the last decade, and you knew it because all you had to do was look at the air. You know, it turned dirtier over time. By the end, we couldn't even see from one end of uh, Victoria Harbor to the other on the worst days. So it's important to remember that any successful renewable energy has to take hold in China and the rest of the developing world, otherwise it's just going to remain niche. But Again, I don't, I don't know if we always report that to the degree we should. So we have to think of where that leads us as we look for solutions. And we're still, in many ways, cycling through the same possibilities we've had before. And each of them has their drawbacks. You know, we have solar photovoltaics, and they're definitely coming down in price quite rapidly. But it is still expensive and, and could remain that, for, that way for a long time. And of course, you still have the issue of what happens when the sun doesn't shine, what you do about storage. For concentrated solar power, that offers you the chance to actually hit utility scale, and we're beginning to see projects like that develop. And there's also a chance that can also develop some sort of storage that could help get around that problem. But you know, we've already seen these mega projects run into regulatory problems just now in, out in California. I mean, they take up a lot of space. They require environmental impact assessments. To scale up is going to be something where that'll be challenging as well. That'll, that'll face opposition too. And you know, wind power includes, we saw the cartoon early on uh, wind power has already matured in many ways, and it does tend to take up a lot of land, if, again, if you want to scale it up, and of course it has the problems that it doesn't always blow when you need the energy most. Then you have first generation biofuels, and which is really the one form of alternative energy that we actually have channeled billions of dollars of money into. 
of your taxpayer money, and that's almost entirely due to the political power of American farmers. And then, of course, now we're finding out that it may actually do more harm than good. You have second-generation biofuels that sound great, I mean, made from substances like algae, but those are going to have their own scale-up problems, their own land-use issues. I knew a, a CEO from an algae a startup right now who actually has begun making algae-based cookies as a means to sort of make revenue while he's, he's trying to work to a scale up. And they're actually, they're very good and, they, and they're actually like half the fat of normal cookies. So that, that could be actually truly revolutionary. <laughs> um, and I, I definitely recommend them. Uh, then you have nuclear power, which is sort of another story altogether. I think we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, my personal feeling, and this is always the best way to start a fist fight in an environmental movement, uh, is that you look at the, the current energy picture and you see nuclear is really the only significant uh, source of zero carbon electricity right now other than hydro and I just find, which I think is pretty much in many ways tapped out especially in the developed world and I just find it hard to imagine how we're going to create a climate friendly energy mix that doesn't include a lot more nuclear um, at the same time though a new plant obviously hasn't been built in decades uh, even though we keep hearing about this nuclear resurgence that's just around the corner we hear it from the White House we saw the president um, give out you know more than eight billion dollars in, in nuclear loan guarantees a couple months ago you know, I, I recently had a chance to interview the head of Exelon, which operates more nuclear power plants in the U.S. You'd think he would be pretty psyched about this, and he dismissed the idea that uh, a nuclear resurgence is really around the corner. To him, the costs are just too high, and without some real significant change in our energy policy and our climate policy, he thinks it's going to stay that way. And uh, to a large extent, that's because the way we as a society price risk. You know, we price the risk of a nuclear accident or the risk of radioactive, radioactive seepage from nuclear waste over time very, very high. We're, we're very scared of that. And that's reflected in how much it costs to really build and permit those plants. We can have that argument, but I mean, that's, as, as long as that's the case, I think it's very hard to, to build up nuclear. And I just don't see that really returning in a big way until that changes. And it's, it's, it's really hard ultimately for me to see any renewable energy power source really taking off and really eating into fossil fuels at least in the near future, unless we truly decide as a society that we need to blunt climate change. That, 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 that is a risk that we have, to, uh, we have to minimize, and we haven't really done that yet, I think. And that's, that's even more true for the development of any carbon sequestration or, or for, for fossil fuels, because that has absolutely no point. There's no point in burying CO2 uh, from a coal plant or, or a natural gas plant unless we really believe that we need to stop this, we need to stop uh, climate change. And of course, in the recent months, we've seen the political consensus for that uh, taking a battering, to say the least. So that's, in some ways, that's led to calls to try to divorce energy policy uh, from climate pol politics. Instead of making the case we need to do something about climate change, we do need to do something about carbon emissions, we can generate, energy, or generate consensus for clean energy by emphasizing the need to cut dependence on foreign oil. But I don't really think that's necessarily going to work either. I mean, that's, that's, that's an old goal. I mean, how long have presidents been promising that they will get off foreign oil? It's always politically popular. Everyone wants to do that. But we've never really done it. The addiction just gets worse and worse. I mean, apparently, at least in the way our policy is, has worked out, we don't really price the risk of foreign oil too high either. We, we, we still want it. Now, all this could change. I and mean, the political consensus could change around this. We could see a, a, a shift in the way we look at uh, either clean energy or, or climate change, or maybe even eventually the, the worries we have about dependence on foreign oil. And of course, I think we all know that ultimately the energy path we're on right now is just not sustainable for a planet of 9 billion people. Uh, but I do think the change in the energy system is going to be a lot slower than we expect, uh, certainly slower than the breathless pieces on companies like Bloom or, or NanoSolar or whatever that next great green thing is that I know I've written, I know others have written as well. Now, the media cycle burns hot and fast. 
We look for stories that have clear points of progress and conflict, reversals and advances, all of which build up to some kind of climax or showdown. And the health, I think the long story of healthcare reform is great. It's just so, so purposely built. You're constantly having new stories to do and you're waiting towards that final climatic moment. You have something happen, you can report on it and you can move on. But with energy, I don't think that really works. I mean, there is, there will be no clear turning points really for energy, at least none to me that will be clear while they happen unless someone walks into the room uh, and says they can do cold fusion or something like that. You know, there won't be a savior, and, and that's a challenge, I think, for the media, because we do, that's how we like to pitch our stories. We want to find that savior, whether it's a person or whether it's a, a technology. We want to find the, 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 the champion that's going to save us all. <coughs> and I think that makes it a challenge to report on the subject really honestly, especially now in the days of declining ad pages, declining space for, for a magazine like Time. Now, if my editor comes to me and asks, well, what is this, you know, Bloom Energy, is it, is it meaningful? Should we do a story? No, whatever. I can tell them, you know, Bloom is a very interesting idea. It's one we should explore, it has promise, but it's not going to revolutionize the energy industry. Well, I tell him that, and I guarantee you, and I've had this conversation before, his interest level is going to drop a little bit. And, you know, there goes my chance to take away some space from something happening in Washington or whatever is obsessing us at that point. You know, I think the media does have, has an institutional bias towards hype and energy because it's in our short-term interest, uh, professionally, to fuel the cycle. But I don't think it's in the reader's interest, really. And ultimately, it's not really in the interest of anyone who wants to see the U.S. and the rest of the world move towards a cleaner energy future. Uh, I think the, the cycle of energy hype, even though it is fascinating in the short term, can breed a certain cynicism or, or inflate expectations for green tech beyond what they can actually deliver. It breeds fatigue with climate change, and which we can already see setting in, even though global warming and the long-term struggle, struggle about how we're actually going to fuel this planet is going to be with us for, for decades and longer. While we need to prepare ourselves for that and our coverage for that, you know, the, the fact this problem isn't going to go away anytime soon, it's still not providing us that daily drama that, that we really like. And, and in some ways, I think clean tech, maybe climate change itself, will become, well, climate, I'm sorry, clean tech at least will become perhaps more of a straight business story as it does grow larger, and we're already seeing that in many ways. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the press now, the business press as well, it's becoming something you report on for business reasons, not just because it's green. But for writers like me who take more of an environmental interest or look at it more from the climate window, I think in some ways the story begins to resemble something else, another slow-moving, titanic issue that is incredibly important but sometimes struggles for daily coverage, and that's global development, global poverty. And after all, I mean, ultimately this is what we're talking about here. How will nine billion people by mid-century actually divide up the world, divide up its resources, and find the energy that will power their lives without choking on what uh, the novelist Ian McEwen calls in his new novel about climate change, Solar, uh, the hot breath of civilization. And of course, that's going to also mean tackling, in many ways, the flip side of the energy problem we're talking about here, and that's the fact that nearly 1.6 billion people around the world lack any access, really, to electricity at all. And that may, remains a major obstacle development, and it's one that doesn't, I don't think really gets the attention that it deserves now, but it's going to in the future. You know, any solution that decarbonizes rich nations, but still leaves the poorest parts of the developing world in darkness, really isn't a solution at all. So I think ultimately, in the media and in the policy world as well, we, what we have to do is resist that urge for a quick fix for this, because there really is no quick fix, unless you're talking about geoengineering, of course, which uh, is going to be Jeff's topic, and which may have some additional side effects, I think. Um, but ultimately, yes, our stories need to reflect this, need to reflect that this is going to be a long haul, long struggle. So otherwise, we're just kept up in that cycle, adding up uh, more hot air to this global furnace we're living in. Thanks very much.
now we can talk about the quick fix. <laughs> um, Wait, so this is the new hope part of the presentation? Right. That was the one part of the cycle. Here's the other part of the cycle now. Me and I. Uh, no. Uh, first, Chris, thanks for um, inviting me here. Um, uh, I have to say, as soon as you mentioned this topic about techno fixes, uh, I was very eager to come and talk about that because uh, it feels like something that I've sort of been living my entire life, this question of can technology fix things and how does that work? Um, I grew up in Silicon Valley um, in a time when Silicon Valley was still apricot orchards and things like that, and um, went to work for this um, Instead of going to college, I went to work for this little company with like this sort of weird rainbow apple thing. It had about 40 people and they were walking around barefoot and playing video games most of the time. I couldn't quite figure out exactly what it was they were doing. They had a funny little name called Apple. And I thought, well, that's cool. That's a, that might be a fun place to work for a little while. Um, and so I went to work there. And um, I spent only... Um, maybe um, less than a year there. Uh, and I remember very clearly sitting at my desk at Apple, looking out the window and thinking, God, I would like to be some, somewhere where something exciting is happening. <laughs> this is so boring. There's nothing going on. I want to be a writer. I want to be at the center of the universe, not with these dorks playing video games. <laughs> so in my brilliance, I'm having read too much Kerouac, I quit Apple and went to Lake Tahoe and dealt blackjack, which was a brilliant, shortly before the IPL, you know. Um, but, but having left Silicon Valley in, in that sort of uh, uh, random fashion, um, I've been thinking about it uh, and what happened there all of my life, really. And um, uh, I actually um, started as a journalist writing about the rise of the personal computer, the internet revolution, I was part of the hype cycle. I wrote a lot of pieces for Rolling Stone, for the New York Times Magazine and others about um, the internet revolution. Um, I was aware at the time that um, I was fueling the bubble, as, a, as it were, but on the other hand, there was, when you're caught up in these cycles as a journalist, there's so much appetite for that, as, as sort of Brian talked about with the energy things. It's very hard to keep your balance, but I, I am, and I, I, I was, you know, trying very hard to write about like some of the um, social consequences of this, of, e of email, virtual world, and all that kind of thing. I'm very proud that I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine about how the internet was affecting hookers <laughs> and how it was changing their business. So I'll just say, mention that, that I'm a very broad view of social change. <laughs> um, uh, and then, but, but I was living it in a more personal way, too, because um, uh, my family, I grew up there, my family went through a really kind of messy divorce and things. My mother ended up working at Apple, too, and kind of caught the, the wave and became very successful and, and uh, I won't say rich, but did well. And my father kind of got left behind. He was a landscape guy, a work on the earth with your hands kind of guy. And I had this strong sense of, of what happens to people who were who catch the wave and who are sort of flattened by the wave. I actually wrote a memoir about that, about growing up and what that meant to be living in the middle of this sort of profound technological change. So I mentioned all this to say that I had this sort of visceral connection to this issue in a way that um, has always sort of motivated me. And so I spent, you know, some number of years writing about the internet boom. And I, and I, and I said, I did my hooker stories and my, all this kind of things and, you know, 
Uh, I did a story about, you know, down and out in Silicon Valley about homeless shelters and people displaced by the internet revolution and things, but I never really got, got it until the New York Times called me up and asked me to go write about the coal industry, the comeback of the coal industry in, in 2000, 2001, right when the Cheney Energy Plan was rolled out. And um, I, I remember the, the, day, the call from my desk. I was at my desk and my editor at the Times called and said, we want you to go to West Virginia and write about the comeback of the coal industry. And I was like, what coal industry? I didn't know we had coal in America. I'd never seen coal. I didn't know it existed. I knew nothing about this. I grew up in California. We, we have magical things like wind turbines and hydro dams and things like that. And I had no idea. I'd spent, I don't know, 10 years writing about the magic of electrons and what they do in email and internet and the billionaires and blah, blah, blah. Never gave any thought to where those electrons come from. And then I went to West Virginia and I went to a mountaintop removal coal mine and I looked down into this mine and I realized this is what's behind our iPods, iPads, iPhones. This is what's driving all this. Half the electricity in America comes from coal. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me because all of a sudden I looked into the industrial underbelly of American life. And it was, it was really, um, uh, you know, profound for me because it really gave me to understand how big a failure I had been in my coverage of technology because I had never given a thought to any of the sort of larger consequences of this. And so that launched me into this coal adventure and I spent um, three or four years writing about energy and doing a book about coal called Big Coal. Uh, which was a kind of trying to follow the life cycle of coal and come to some kind of understanding of what kind of what goes on behind the light switch. That was the sort of idea of the book was what goes on behind the light switch. Come to some kind of terms with this thing because one of the you know factors of modern life is this distancing of of ourselves from the consequences of our actions. We don't know where our hamburgers come from. We don't know when we pee where it goes. We don't know you know where our, we don't know where our, where our pharmaceutical stuff comes from, you know, we don't know anything. We just go to Staples or to, to the store, we buy things, we eat, we do our jobs. And, we, and this is sort of a wonderful thing in a way. You go to developing world, I spent a lot of time in China for my coal book, and you see the consequences of what it's like to live in a different kind of way. So there's a, this, behind this miracle though, is this distancing, and this coal book was all about trying to bring that forward in a way, kind of trying to open the door to the slaughterhouse. Um, but when I finished that book, I then thought, okay, well, as, as Brian pointed out, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to stop burning coal. And I spent a lot of time with clean tech entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, who, a lot of whom had segued out of the internet thing. One guy was doing, three years ago I had known him as, as uh, doing a company called Red Envelope, like fancy gifts like lingerie and stuff, and the next minute he's doing solar panels. You know, I mean, it's just a different business plan, but the same people often. Um, um, but, you know, and, and I wrote a lot about them, but it became very clear to me when I started to get to know the energy world better and the climate scientists and looking around the world at what's happening with coal that we weren't going to stop burning this stuff anytime soon. So what, what does that mean? What does that mean for how we live? What does that mean for how we deal with global warming? What does that mean for me as a writer covering and thinking about this? And that's when I came across this 
kind of wild idea of geoengineering. And um, it was immediately provocative, um, simply because it's such a big, crazy idea. And as everyone who first he hears about it, their immediate reaction is, this is a crazy idea. We don't, we can't, you know, manage, you know, our checkbooks, much less the climate. What are we, you know, this is like science fiction writ large, right? And for other, any of you who don't know about um, geoengineering, it's the sort of defined as the sort of intentional large-scale manipulation of the climate. There's various ways of doing that. Um, some of the sort of, there's a lot of crackpot ideas like throwing special K into the ocean to change the uh, albedo or reflectivity of the ocean, launching nuclear weapons of bombs on the moon to blow moon dust into the atmosphere and reflect away sunlight. Uh, but I don't really deal with those, as tempting as it was to have fun with those uh, kind of ideas. Uh, but there's a lot of much more serious-minded ideas about how we might do it. One of them is um, spraying um, uh, seawater into marine clouds to change the reflectivity of clouds and ref reflect some sunlight away from the tops of the clouds and basically lower the temperature of the planet. Um, there's other ideas about putting little particles way up in the stratosphere. Small amount, five grams of sulfate particles. They can be made from many things, but sulfate is probably the most likely place to begin. Five grams of uh, sulfur in the atmosphere offsets the warming of a ton of carbon dioxide of, in the atmosphere. So it's an enormous amount of leverage that we have. So there's various ideas like this that, are, that are, were quite serious um, and quite possible and doable. But it brings up a lot of really complicated and interesting questions like what happens if we start messing with this and it goes wrong? Are we crazy to be even considering this? Uh, what happens if, you know, as I was just at this Asilomar conference on geoengineering last week that some of you may or may not have heard of, and there was a lot of talk about rogue states. And of course, a great philosopher from NYU came up and said, you know, you're always talking about rogue states, and you're thinking of that as code word for China or India or something. But what about us? You know, we are the ones who invaded, you know, Iraq. And so he was making the point that, you know, who knows who, who could do this? And it, it's even more interesting in that it's so relatively inexpensive and relatively <coughs> simple, and theoretically, uh, that a, an individual, a group of individuals, could even do something like this. So it brings up a lot of questions about governance, regulation, some of the, uh, a lot of people who were involved in, in nuclear disarmament are beginning to get engaged in this. So it brings up a lot of questions that as a journalist and as a, someone who's thinking about what to spend some time really digging into, it was immediately provocative to me. And so, um, so, so I, I started, I did a couple of magazine stories and I, I just basically then decided that this was a great subject for a book. And, and but one of the interesting things from a media point of view is that a number of people came up to me and said, don't do this book. You shouldn't do this. You know, we're, we've been working so hard to cut emissions. We've been working, you know, we're at the, the cusp of change. You know, it's your job. You have a responsibility as a journalist to, you know, to, um, uh, you're with us on this, aren't you, sort of kind of thing. And if you start talking about this, you're going to let people th think, people will think there's a quick fix, that there is a simple solution to this, and it's going to take away from the momentum of cutting emissions. And there was a lot of 
pressure on me from my environmental friends saying, you are crazy. This is, you're just lunatic. You're going to fire up the <coughs> conversation about this. You're going to um, destroy the momentum of this. This is going to become something that the fossil fuel industry is going to latch onto as a quick fix. We talked about quick fixes. And you're just going to be used as a tool for, you know, basically another stage of denialism. Of course, I argued back with, about that, that I'm, first of all, not a political activist. I'm a journalist. It's not my job to, you know, manage the movement. Um, and second of all, well, maybe my book will show that this is a really bad idea. Maybe I'll spend some time looking at this and decide it's a really bad idea, and that will have the opposite effect. It'll take it off the table. Um, so that was one interesting thing. The other interesting thing about the initial look into this was it is the embodiment of the coverage of this so far, and it, it, up until you know, I, I, while I was writing my book, has been uh, what Chris talked about the yo-yo effect, and Brian talked about the yo-yo effect of how we think about technological fixes. I mean, this is every story basically has been: Are these guys crazy? This is, we're doing this crazy, crazy thing. And on one hand, it's um, plays up the sort of lunatic side of it all the time. But on the other hand, there's an undeniable sexy fascination with, well, is it possible, right? Um, and all, virtually every story about this so far has been on those two sort of paradigms, either playing into this really deep American thing about fascination with the sort of Yankee tinkerer, the Steve Jobs, the, the entrepreneur, the we have a solution, the thing that I grew up with. It was this uh, technological optimism that's in the water in Silicon Valley. And it really plays into that. It's like, well, it's a crazy idea, but maybe we can, right? Maybe some smart guy, maybe there's a way to really do this. And it plays into that part of, of, a, of, the, of a, the American psyche, which I think runs really, really deep on many, many levels. It also plays into the other side, which is the fear of technology, the, the, the nuclear, the, the whole sort of Cold War scenario playing over the nuclear fears, all the fears we have of what technology can do, the Big Brother stuff, all kinds of um, deeply held fears about big science, uh, technology run amok, we're going to start messing with clouds and before you know it there's going to be, you know, monsoons in Palm Springs. Right, and we're just going to have this thing go crazy. So those are the two sort of poles of the kind of conversation and the way the media covered this. And I went into this book with a very straightforward idea, which was to take on this notion of, is this a crazy idea or not? And my, the book is basically built around my exploration of this, my own coming to terms. Because I didn't know what I thought either when I started this book. I, I thought of this book as, a kind of personal, almost almost like a personal journey, going out to meet some of the geoengineers, going out to spend time with them, thinking through some of the issues, really, really chronicling my own evolution of thought on this. Because, uh, first of all, it's the best way I could think of to structure the book. But I also think that um, walking through this is really an important thing right now. And um, everyone is asking me. The first question everyone asks me is, you know, what do you what did you come up with? What do you think? Is it good or bad? You know, should we do this or should we not? And um, I won't tell you because I don't want to know how terrible it is to spoil the ending of a book. But I will say there's a little bit more nuanced than that. And I think that what I did come away with this feeling is that this is a really big idea that is far more complicated than we've even come close to dealing with in the media. 
and that there's a kind of long-term inevitability to this. That this is, in a very broad sense, not in the sense that we're going to put stuff in the atmosphere tomorrow, but in a very broad sense, the direction that civilization and humanity is moving, and it's probably inevitably moving toward. Um, and for more details, read the book. <laughs> All right, well, that's a, uh, that's a lot of interesting wheat uh, for uh, a discussant to try to cope with. Uh, I wish, in a way, that uh, all journalists were as self-aware as, as these two, and, and in particular, Brian's opening remarks um, covered a lot of what uh, I think really needs to be talked about in terms of the sort of cycle of uh, on the one hand, uh, unfounded hype, and on the other hand, unfounded fear uh, or criticism of uh, new technology. Uh, and nuclear power in particular, of course, which is something I've focused on a lot, has the debate over nuclear power has been, I think, uh, twisted by both uh, the you know, too cheap to meter optimism and by an, an unfounded degree of pessimism that there's nothing you can do uh, to make nuclear power safe, uh, the whole sort of normal accidents uh, idea, uh, that there's nothing you can do to prevent nuclear power from contributing to the spread of nuclear weapons. Um, and I think, for example, that the recent decision to cancel the Yucca Mountain Repository was, in a sense, a triumph of unfounded pessimism and NIMBY politics over, you know, a basically reasonable uh, public policy, reasonable in a technical sense, completely unreasonable from the beginning in a uh, political sense, in that uh, where nuclear waste disposal has succeeded, uh, in Finland, for example, they uh, chose a site for a repository not only with the support of the local community, but the community that didn't get it sued. Uh, and that was partly because of a completely voluntary approach, where they said from the beginning, no community that doesn't want this repository is going to get this repository. No community will be forced. Whereas in the United States, we said, OK, 49 states are going to gang up on Nevada. Um, and that was how uh, we picked things. But the question is, in a world with all of the incentives for journalists that we've heard about, how do we deal with these kinds of issues? Um, how do we address this cycle of hype uh, and pessimism? And I think journalists have uh, both an opportunity and in a sense of responsibility to give readers at least a little bit of the context when there's a new technology or a new critique or a new idea. Um, and first of all, what Brian was talking about, just the scale. Um, you have to, when you look at something, whether it's a, you know, a bloom box or whatever, you have to say, okay, well, how many of those would you need to make an interesting difference? What kind of infrastructure would you have to have to support that? How plausible is it that that's going to grow at the kind of pace that would actually uh, make an interesting difference? What are the obstacles? What are the risks? What are the costs? If, if every time there was a story on some company that had a great new energy technology that was going to make you know, fuels for the equivalent of $30 a barrel, if someone would at least say, 
By the way, every previous such prediction has proved to be wrong. <laughs> that would be a step in the right direction. <laughs> uh, I was just talking with a, a very interesting company that was predicting exactly that. $30 a barrel for their uh, solar, solar uh, biofuels uh, uh, the other day. And I, I wish them well. I certainly hope they achieve that. I certainly doubt that they will. But it's not only physical scale. There's also what kind of institutional changes would be needed for a particular technology to grow and operate on the scale that we're talking about. I mean, uh, you know, coal with carbon sequestration is an obvious example. Um, if you look at physical scale of, you know, if we actually were going to capture all of the CO2 from U.S. coal plants and put it underground. What is the physical scale? Well, it's, it's basically the physical scale of, the, of replicating the whole oil and gas industry, <laughs> more or less, and, and taking that, that liquid pressurized CO2 and putting it uh, back into the ground. It's absolutely immense. And then when you talk about institutions, we're sponsoring uh, at the moment, for example, uh, an effort at the Harvard Law School to think about, well, who has the liability when you put some, some CO2 under the ground? Who owns the poor space underground. If your CO2 goes over from, you know, where the plot line is drawn over into the next person's land, you know, who owns that poor space over there? How do we put together places where you can put CO2 in a legal and institutional sense? And certainly in nuclear power, that is a, a very fundamental aspect. I mean, you see over and over again, you know, stories about things like TerraPower, this new nuclear reactor that the Microsoft people are investing in that seem to forget that there exists, you know, a nuclear regulatory commission that is going to have to issue licenses and that, uh, you know, by the way, there's absolutely nobody who works at the nuclear regulatory commission who has any experience whatsoever with that kind of reactor and that just getting a slight modification to the normal 17 by 17 fuel array for a light water reactor usually takes 10 years to get a license. I mean, we're not going to be building terapower reactors for a long time. Um, and but then also, when people start raising issues like that, it's reasonable to start asking questions about, well, what are the opportunities to overcome some of these kinds of obstacles? Are there technologies that could overcome some of these obstacles and risks? Are there institutional approaches that could overcome um, some of these obstacles and risks? But I think really the scale is the fundamental issue. I think that um, we don't really understand as a society just how big this challenge is, just how fundamental we're talking about in terms of the transformation, and just how slowly, as Brian was saying, this energy system moves. I mean, you build a power plant today, it's still going to be generating power half a century from now. Uh, my basement is flooded at the moment, and in that flood, uh, there's a big pile of coal sitting in my basement from when my house used to be powered by coal, you know. 50, 60, 80 years ago. Uh, so homes sometimes turn over uh, even slower than the, than the power plants and other buildings as well. And then that starts driving people toward the geoengineering idea, which is the only thing that could be done uh, uh, relatively quickly. But it, it's not, I, I was taken by your statement that five grams of sulfate would offset a ton of CO2 because it, it makes, it's a, it's a, it makes it sound as though it's the same, as though you're doing the same thing, as though you're 
there's the CO2 that's on the plus side and you're putting something on the minus side. But in fact, you're cooling in a very different place in the atmosphere in a very different way. And of course, you're not addressing the carbon acidification of the ocean and the various other things uh, that would take place. It, it may well be that we will find that we have a climate emergency and that we will move toward uh, a geoengineering approach. But we have to accept that that's, it's sort of pulling on another part of the system in order to deal with a pushing that you're doing on a part of the system over here. And it's doing, it's doing a different thing and it's gonna have side effects that we don't uh, fully understand. And what that gets to is that it's really not fundamentally a science and technology issue. It's really fundamentally a very profound issue of politics and morals and ethics. I mean, who has the right to decide that we're gonna take some particular action that's gonna really change the Earth's atmosphere? And unfortunately or unfortunately, as Jeff was pointing out, it's gonna be possible to have the power to decide that whether or not you have the right to decide that because it's not gonna be that expensive uh, or difficult. Uh, to do things that would change the atmosphere uh, in a very profound way. I mean, one, one thing that's uh, always interested me about this, if you put a lot of sulfate into the atmosphere, the sky won't be quite as blue on a clear day, but the sunsets will be a lot nicer. And so then who has the power to decide? You know, are we gonna make the sky a little bit less blue? I mean, you know, in a, in a certain sense, that's the least of the, of the side effects that you would have. But yet, it, you know, it affects everybody in the world. Um, so anyway, I would, uh, a plea for context, a plea especially for context about scale uh, and about the record of past mispredictions with respect to how rapidly technology is gonna advance and how great the costs are gonna be of new technologies. I think we can still get our stories into the, into the magazines if we uh, provide at least a little bit of that context. Thank you. Anybody, we do have chairs up here in the front if anyone else is looking. Um, we'll take some questions. I guess what one thing would be interesting from the political side for you all to address is given the stalemate on the uh, reduction of, you know, greenhouse gas emissions from a international and currently at a national level, do, do you see more attention to technology coming up as long as we're uh, kind of stuck doing nothing at the moment? I guess I can start. Um, yes, I think so. I think, I mean, that there's a, it may, it may feed into a general feeling that Washington is just not capable of dealing with, with many problems. I mean, that seems so deadlocked that we need to look outside what's going on there to get some sort of leadership or some sort of hope early. And so I think that's often a lot of what these stories are about when talking about these new energy technologies. It's about, it's about hope. I mean, it's about giving us some, some sense that we can innovate our way out of this. We've, in a sense, innovated our way into it. Um, with by creating the sort of system we have now and all the benefits and side effects it has, the hope again, and that's that's that techno optimism that's so deep in the American character and and in Silicon Valley and California above all, that we can innovate our way out of it. So I think the two feet off each other. That the worse things seem to get politically, the more we will look for possibly long shot energy technologies to to, to save us, and then eventually again that might lead us to geoengineering as sort of the ipiotis of that. Really, I think. Um. 
I think there is more interest in uh, technology, and I think there should be more interest in technology. I mean, one aspect of the scale, if you just, if you say, okay, over the next 50 or 100 years, ultimately, the right answer has to be that every citizen on the planet has the same right to the atmosphere as every other citizen on the planet, and you say, okay, I'm not going to be allowed, ultimately, to use up any more of the Earth's atmosphere than a person in China or India is able to use. And then you look at 9 billion people and you say, and you look at the carbon budget for stabilizing at any reasonable level and you say, okay, how many tons can I emit every year? You can't live uh, today's American lifestyle, anything remotely resembling today's American lifestyle and stay within that carbon budget. And so then your answer is, well, either we have to fundamentally transform the basic ways we live in the developed world or we have to have different technology. Uh, but I would say today we really are not investing at the scale that we need to be in energy research development uh, and deployment. Uh, there are good reasons why uh, you need federal investment uh, in these technologies. The, many of them are very long term. In many cases it's hard for a, a given company to capture all of the, all of the uh, rents from a technology that they develop. Uh, many of them are very high risk and I think uh, that if we're going to have much chance of developing the technologies we need to cope with this problem, we need a, a really substantial increase. The, 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 uh, the uh, stimulus bill provided a big boost for, especially for certain demonstration projects and, and loan guarantees for deploying some early technologies, but I think we need a lot more on the R&D side than we're doing so far. Uh, I would just add, uh, first I would, encourage everyone to look at a uh, talk that Bill Gates gave at uh, TED conference a few weeks ago or February. He talked about exactly that. And he talked about the need to get a plan for a uh, zero carbon energy by 2050 and the need for a much larger federal investment and everything in order to get to that. And we're not thinking anywhere near big enough for the scale of this problem. Uh, and just the only other thing I would add is that, um, you know, people in Silicon Valley have long thought that Washington is broken and don't, you know, want to basically route around Washington. Uh, and that's been, of course, difficult with energy because of all of the uh, politics of it. But I think that broadly, technologists and people who are investing in this understand that the long-term curve of this is very obvious. I mean, there's no question that we're moving towards a different energy economy. And the question is, you know, how soon do we get there and what is the, sh the real shape of that? But uh, I think in the venture capitalist community, especially the people that I know, you know, the question is just time. You know, they want returns and so they're kind of getting impatient. But I think that, the, you know, the long-term curves are pretty straightforward. And, and just one other thing. Um, I think your book is going to get a bit of attention and I, I want to bring this back to kind of climate and the media. So everyone's not going to go on a journey around the country and figure it out as you did. And I might add, uh, there's another book, as these things uh, seem to happen, that it will be coming out after Jeff's book, which, what's the name? Hacking the Climate. So I suspect there'll be some reviews and attention to geoengineering in the near future as these books come out. What, you're not going to be able to get away with the, read the book uh, <coughs> synopsis. So. Uh, how do you see this playing as a media story, uh, whether it's your books or something else that bring back these technologies? And 
back to uh, Matt's comment about context. Uh, so in a short, uh, more than soundbite, uh, what do you see as the message uh, that might be conveyed uh, in, in your book and also in the coverage ahead? Well, I, uh, to be really brief, I think that the uh, look what these crazy scientists are thinking about now sort of storyline has played out. Um, and I think that the next stage of the coverage in the mainstream media is going to be, well, hey, let's think about this a little bit more seriously. A lot of people who are very well regarded in the science and climate establishment are calling for an actual research program. Uh, to actually begin to do some federal funding of this simply to know if this works or doesn't. And it, um, when you begin to dig into this, it becomes very clear that, you know, there's a, there's a movement to ban, to say we should just ban this. This should be something like, you know, genetically modified organisms or something like that. There should just be a ban on anything beyond climate modeling of this. But I, so I think there's going to be controversy around that. Um, but I think that it's becoming pretty clear that that's not a very useful or smart strategy. Even some of the big environmental groups like Environmental Defense and NRDC are sort of moving beyond that. Um, because if you don't do some experiments, if you don't start to see what really works and what doesn't and separate kind of fact from fiction, it's impossible to set up a governance structure. And I think a lot of it is going to coverage is going to move now to the politics of this. Is how do we how do we set up a governance structure? Who should be the one who oversees this? Is this something that should be looked over by the UN? Is this something that, you know, there, should there be federal funding? How do we invest in, is there should be, there be private investment, IP protection, things like that is, I think, where we're going to be going with the coverage. And, and Brian, how, how do you see, uh, you've read the book, how, how do you see, kind of not his book per se, but um, this issue in particular, which is controversial and sexy, how do you see it being covered in your own magazine or by other national media? Yeah, I, I see it. It's, it's, it is moving beyond the mad scientist uh, phase. I mean, it, it, first off, I mean, we've done a couple stories on it in the years past, and it was very much like, how would we do this? You know, what would we put in the ocean iron? What would it do? I mean, it makes for great graphics, and it was like a different way to look at the climate problem. Now it becomes, the more real it becomes, and of course also it goes hand in hand with the difficulties we're finding actually cutting carbon emissions, actually coming to an agreement both nationally and globally to do that, suddenly it becomes real. And so I think the next phase will be very much who has the right? What are the geopolitical institutions or what would be the decision-making process to possibly do this? Now it's a long way off. I mean, it's, and I wonder if it's ever possible in that sense, not technologically, but, but literally politically, but that would be the next point that, that I'm interested in. And, you know, I mean, at, at that conference you mentioned, I think, was was modeled after what was it, the the one in the 70s about genetic risk. Right, exactly. And in the same way, I think, you know, it'll, it'll be a decision. I mean, where, where do we put the limits on the research here? Where do we put the limits on what we can and cannot do? It's very interesting that this is, we're already in geoengineering the planet. We're just doing it by accident now. Now we have to decide whether we'll actually take the responsibility to begin to try to take a hand in it. Okay, we'll take some questions. If you will identify yourself and uh, again follow the short question mode and, and please try to keep it about climate and the media, not necessarily a debate on all the major environmental issues that uh, face us in this area of technology and climate change. Hi, my name is Michael. I'm a new media producer here in Boston. My question is about public awareness uh, through different media. 
um, not just about what the problem is, but how to engage with the various solutions that are on the table. Uh, I'm specifically interested in the comments that both journalists made about how, in some ways, the causes were, were sort of hidden uh, behind a lot of the stories that they did. And my question gets at that maybe the journals you write for aren't necessarily geared towards getting into these deeper engagements with the issues, you know, that the format isn't there. And as someone who works a lot uh, in museums and with mobile technology that's afforded some more immediate experiences of what climate change can do to specific animals and the oceans and our environments, I'm kind of interested if any of you have, have seen um, other media forms than journalism or, or, or written journalism that you find uh, provocative as ways to engage the public and inform them uh, um, about these issues. One idea that comes to mind, for instance, is An Inconvenient Truth, which wasn't only a film, which started as a PowerPoint presentation, became a film, and then became a series of traveling um, volunteers that were representing the PowerPoint to groups in forums like this. So I'm kind of interested in that, that mode of, of, of new media forums to talk about this. Um, I can think of one. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not sure if it even counts as a media forum, but I mean, the, uh, the Museum of Natural History in, the U in, in New York City had a, uh, a major climate change exhibition, I think about a year and a half ago. I think it was a fall of 08. And that, you know, that really, to me, was a, was a different way to make this, to, to make this work for people, because they had the, the background, they had the context, they had the ability to create it, uh, uh, an entire exhibition that sort of gave you a hands-on idea as to where we were going, presented the science in, I think, a fairly fair way, though I really wonder what it would be like if they did it now, actually, um, given, given everything. And I think that's, that was to me something that, that really that made a difference and, and was a way that, that's a lot deeper and more meaningful to the average person than what you could really do in a magazine story, uh, maybe even what you could do in a documentary as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of the coverage and talk about this has been kind of one note, a kind of one tone. Um, and I, you know, I'm not an artist, uh, obviously, I'm a journalist, but um, I, I think that the sort of art world, and I mean that not just, I don't mean painters, but I mean the whole, you know, filmmakers, uh, composers, everyone has not really engaged on this in ways yet to uh, really communicate some of the deeper messages here. But one of the things that's difficult about this is that we are dealing with something very profound, not just about the complexity of the challenges that we face, but the complexities of the challenges we face in who we are and what we are about and what we're willing to sacrifice and how we're willing to change. I know this really smart physicist who's kind of on the fringe, um, but really brilliant guy, and I was stuck at an airport with him uh, six months ago or something, and we had like two hours to just drink coffee and let him chatter. And, uh, I mean, he, but, he, but he, you know, he's a very provocative guy, and he's like, you know what, I think the only way we're going to really deal with this is, you know, genetic engineering, the human brain, you know, because we're so incapable of grasping what's at stake. And now, I don't think, I don't take, I'm not repeating that to endorse this, but I think that there's something to that. I mean, the scale, we talked about scale of the energy problem, but the scale of the psychological problem is equally large. And I think that's hard for any journalist, even someone as talented as Brian, to communicate in, you know, a magazine piece or, or even a book or anything like that. 
There's a James Locke, uh, James Love Locke said a couple of days ago, I think humans are too stupid to deal with climate <laughs> yeah, change. Right, right, right. right. Uh, my name is George Mokray, and I've been writing about this stuff for about 15 years online, and I do small-scale solar on my own. Um, there's some words that I didn't hear, and I'm wondering why I didn't hear them. I didn't hear efficiency. I didn't hear ecosystem. I didn't hear biosphere. I didn't hear ecosystem or ecological design. And I didn't hear one name, the man who I think was the first geoengineer, Thomas Midgley Jr., the man who put tetraethyl lead in gasoline, and the man who invented CFCs. So I'm wondering, what's, why didn't I hear those words? Why didn't I hear that name? And, and Brian, I, I know you wrote a piece about what individuals could do in conservation and efficiency. Uh, how much has that been covered in the media in a way that it's reaching the average citizen? I mean, to, I mean, I think to conservation and, and, and what you can do individually has been has been done uh, a, a fair amount. I mean, we we did tons of environmental coverage about every April or so, and it was two thousand six, I think, that, or 2007 maybe, that we did 52 things you can do about climate change and was useful. But I, I mean, I, at the same time, I, it, the, the scale of individual action is important, but it is a long way off from the scale. Uh, and Sorry. I'm not necessarily talking just individual action, right. but e efficiency and conservation in terms of buildings and residences right. and such. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you're right, absolutely, I regret, no, I mean, we all know that buildings are, are, are a huge portion of how we use electricity, and I, I regret not mentioning that specifically. I should have thrown that in there. Though I do, I, I wonder about the long-term effect that efficiency will have in terms of actually cutting down on carbon emissions. I mean, you know about the, the rebound effect, which is a subject of academic debate, how significantly it will impact what kind of savings we get from energy efficiency. But you can imagine the more energy efficient we get, we will be saving money, we'll be saving energy. If we just don't spend that, keep it to ourselves, then we'll actually be getting carbon cuts. But if we go and then use it somewhere else, if we, I mean, the basic example, of course, is get the Prius, spend less on gas, drive more, end up still emitting a lot of carbon. You can see that in other things, or it happens economy-wide. I think it does cut down on the scale of the improvements you can get from CO2, as long as you're still depending mostly on a carbon-based energy system, energy efficiency alone won't get there, which isn't to say, of course, it's not incredibly important from an economic standpoint, because all you can, you can save and, and, and cut waste, but I do, question sometimes how significant it can make in terms of actually reducing carbon. And just in terms of what I was talking about, it was just we were, when I think energy choices, I do think more energy supply side, which I think is a, 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 a I guess, a, um, something we do too often in the media. I think we, we do tend to forget that the demand side things because we get a little carried away with the shiny, you know, f from the uh, supply side. And I think sometimes we, we should try to stop doing that so much. Well, and, I, and I think the uh, residential and transportation is over 50% of the uh, of the use. So I think it's true. There's a little bit more emphasis on one side than the other. Matt, did you have a Certainly my uh, plea for additional R&D and, and demonstration funding from the federal government was intended to include both uh, efficiency and uh, supply. Uh, technologies and that in our work in the energy research development demonstration deployment project we are definitely focusing in a serious way on efficiency as well as on uh, supply it's pretty clear I think that most of the best carbon reduction you know the, the low-hanging fruit in carbon reduction is on the efficiency side primarily 
uh, the things that are really cheap or negative cost to do, uh, which then gets you back into sort of institutional questions about why aren't they happening already. Um, uh, I'll just be very brief um, uh, about the ecosystem thing. One of the reasons that I even decided to do the book was um, meeting one of these scientists who's involved in thinking about geoengineering and him coming to understand that this is a tool for, could be potentially a tool for ecosystem preservation. And he himself was very engaged and very deeply emotionally connected to the Arctic and has spent a lot of time in sort of the, the, the cold north and, uh, and, and really was engaged in this because he thought that if this is the only real tool we could have to save that ecosystem if we decided that we wanted to try to do that or at least to slow down the melt of that ecosystem. And so for him, preservation was, is a huge motivation and he's about as um, uh, deeply committed of an environmentalist as I've ever come across. His, in fact, his father was one of the early uh, scientists who looked into the problems of DDT even before Rachel Carson. Anyway. Um, next question, thanks. Uh, my name is Jesse Lava. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. And um, this is similar to the efficiency question, but I'd like to uh, sharpen it uh, just a little bit. I'm wondering how we might get more coverage of sort of those boring technologies, not the you know shiny ones uh, that are already around but are being underutilized because of regulatory barriers. And I'm thinking specifically of combined heat and power and waste heat recovery and, and, and so on, which the vast majority of people don't know exists despite the potential that is talked about. And I should just give a little full disclosure. Uh, I, I do some work with Tom Kasten, who I know a couple of you guys are, are familiar with, but you could talk a little bit about that. Tom uh, <laughs> Tom Kasten too. Um, I, you know, I mean that that's it's it, it, it is it's tough. I mean, it's tough to sexy up see uh, combined heat and power. You know, I um, it has I've I've written up a bit. I mean, I looked at it from uh, what was going on in Denmark actually because they've they've been such leaders on this. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's tough. I, I wish I could give you a better answer if I could if I could craft my pitches better for a subject like that. I would. I mean, I think it. You know, it's just trying to. Uh, to, 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 to really drive home the message that, again, these are the low-hanging fruits that, that maybe you can compare and contrast while we're all waiting for, uh, you know, a Silicon Valley savior, we're really dropping the ball by failing to do more of the things that are lower, uh, that are right there. Um, I mean, that's the way to, to, to pitch it. But I mean, I just, from experience, I know, it, you know, I say the words combined heat and power, and I can see the glaze <laughs> spreading over their, their, their eyes. I, one uh, suggestion on that is to do it as a, a sort of exciting business story in the sense that uh, combined heat and power has been beating the pants off of most other, uh, you know, new uh, installations of power in a lot of countries uh, in recent years, and uh, hardly anybody knows that that's true. And uh, it seems to me it's at least a, a mildly interesting, you know, here's this here's this whole business zone that you don't even know about that's going like gangbusters. I think that if I tried to pitch a uh, story about combined heat and power to Rolling Stone, they would think I was talking about a cover story with Kid Rock and Lady Gaga. <laughs> 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 uh, but I think that if you can get at so that. Maybe the celebrity endorsement <laughs> aspect. Right. Yeah. I, the only thing I'll say about that is that, you know, those are the kind of issues that are really, really, as Ryan said, really hard to sex up for uh, our kind of media, mainstream media. 
Um, but there are ways of getting at that by talking about price signals and I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 there's just certain things that mainstream media can deal with and can't. And um, I was, I'm involved with a documentary film about the coal industry and um, uh, we actually have a whole 20 minute or 15 minute section about combined heat and power and we have Sean and Tom Caston, we go to one of their, uh, it's called West Virginia Alloy, the silicon plant that they have refitted. And it's incredibly, it's one of the sexiest parts of the movie because there's a lot of heat and fire and <laughs> things like that. But it, so it works on film, right? Because you have these plants with all this stuff burning and melting metal coming in and out and, and they're very good characters. But it's hard to get that into a newspaper or a magazine or something like that. I should say, you know, beyond, for both the last two questions, I mean, beyond the mainstream media, there are other forms of media that are growing so quickly that cater to people who really do care about this deeply, and they will go deep into things like CHP and energy efficiency and conservation, and, you know, the message does not just have to be carried in that kind of mainstream way, and I think the fact that those, a lot of those, you know, <laughs> like Chris.org is, you know, tree hugger places like that, are growing and doing so well is a sign that there are people who care about this and, and, and want that deep, deep, deep dive. Hi, I'm Roger Shamel with the Global Warming Education Network. I've been in the movement, so to speak, for a couple of years, and it seems like we're not moving ahead more quickly legislatively because your typical average American out there with the short time frame and everything and the shows they watch on TV doesn't really understand how serious the problem is and that once we get to a certain point we're kind of locked into that for quite a long time unless we go into geoengineering which as a chemist scares me so my question is is it the job of the media to get the word out to the public about how serious it is or is this something the government should do or what can we do to break the logjam you know we I guess that you know, now we're getting into media ethics to some degree. I mean, what what is the responsibility? I think you have a responsibility to try to treat the truth, and and if there's a if there is, in your view, a major problem ahead, to to, to be a warning voice. I mean, I, I maybe that's not the right way to put it, but but certainly, I mean, if you know you're 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 doing in your writing, trying to prioritize the things that we're facing, and then you mentioned the the problem of communicating, the fact that we get locked in. I mean, that's that's a tricky thing, and to really make people understand the fact that this is, this is, you know, you throw that carbon up, it's not going away. It's not like every other pollutant that just sort of disappears once you turn off the smokestack. It's there forever, or, sorry, centuries. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that, maybe that's something we haven't really been able to get across well enough. I mean, it's tough, but, you know, the, the resurgence of, yeah, of climate skepticism over the past half year or so really, I took me by surprise. I mean, I, I within what we were writing, I thought that was more or less settled, you know, and, and the very fact we're back talking over this again, I mean, it's like 10 years could have passed and we're still talking about the same thing. Yeah. We're still talking about whether it's real or not. And if, as long as you're still caught in that conversation, it's, it's impossible to get beyond that and really get to the, the deeper political questions. I mean, I think that's, that's a challenge. And I, I, I don't know how to get beyond that. I, I'm not sure what the media, because I'm not sure how trusted the media is always by the kind of people who don't believe in this anymore and I certainly we, I don't think they're going to believe the government uh, in its current incarnation either so it's a tough one and, and you mentioned the terms I think both greenwash I don't know if you meant and green fatigue mm -hmm. yeah. and as we are coming upon April and I guess you can't reveal what cover time might have time actually from an editorial standpoint probably 
went out front more than most mainstream media with the original cover, which was 2006, with the polar bear and the you should be worried, very, very worried, and came under some criticism for uh, coming out so strongly. So what's your sense about the green fatigue, even amongst uh, media that were charging ahead? It's definitely there. You know, I can tell it's there when what kind of stories are getting reception and, and, and what aren't. Um, there's a sense that we're running out of things to say. You know, I think, I mean, that's, again, what we're talking about with the difference between the speed of the media cycle and the scale and length of this problem. It's almost like you think, okay, well, 2006, we identified the problem. 2007, we told you what you should do. Why haven't you solved it yet? And why are you still writing about it? It's kind of the sense I sometimes, I sometimes get. And, you know, there's still a commitment on our part to keep doing those stories. Um, you know, and, and I don't think that's going to change, hopefully, uh, anytime, anytime soon, but it, it, it's, it's not as receptive as it once was. I mean, I can only imagine our, our readers, a lot of them may, may feel the same. It's just this divide is, is growing, you know. I mean, for those, in some ways, yes, in, in a mainstream way, we were ahead, you know, we jumped ahead in 2006 by saying this, but of course, those who understand the problem would know it's, they had come to that conclusion well before that, so it's also argued that we were behind, and I think it's, you know, I, I, I wish I knew better how to, I mean, I'm constantly looking for new ways to look at this and, and new, new, new approaches to take and trying to globalize it more, I think, which is important. But it is going to be tough to keep that attention going forward for years and years and years and, and, and years, really. So. Thank you, and keep trying. <laughs> this is a common problem for, you know, all large, slow-moving problems in a certain sense. Um, whether you mentioned global poverty. Uh, overpopulation, all of these kinds of things, you know, the, the uh, global problems of water supply, uh, you can list dozens and dozens of these kinds of things that are underlying conditions that change only slowly and trying to get people to pay attention to them is very hard. I remember I worked, do a lot of my work on uh, nuclear terrorism, nuclear smuggling, and one journalist said to me at one point, my editor told me he doesn't want another nuclear smuggling story unless I've got a smuggler with plutonium in his pocket. <laughs> Um, we're, we've got five minutes, so we'll take those last two questions and then close out. Hi there, I'm Susan Moran, uh, journalist on a night science journalism fellowship, having the privilege to ponder questions like this for an academic year. So, um, Matt, I really appreciated your comment about sort of a plea for journalists to put in context more what they're saying, and I want you and Jeff to put more in context. I think you both said that geoengineering is relatively inexpensive. Not that it can solve the problems, but it also can come relatively quickly. I mean, relative is such a fuzzy word, particularly when, you know, Congress has nixed the production tax credits for concentrating solar power and wind power, which would otherwise make them a lot less expensive. So how does it square? And I'm sure you have more answers in your book, but... Um, well, that's a great question, um, because this question of how you calculate costs is hugely at the center of all of this. And, yeah, I wrote a book about the coal industry, and one of the things that the coal industry always talks about is how cheap coal power is. Well, the reason it's cheap is because they don't factor in the kids with asthma, they don't factor in the mercury in the water, they don't factor in the melting Arctic from CO2. All of these things called externalities are not factored in, and they just like to show little charts of the kilowatt price from a 40-year-old coal plant that you know, has no pollution controls, and they say, oh, it's, look how cheap coal is. There's something similar with geoengineering from a... Um, purely, you know, how much does it cost to cool off from, say, a doubling of CO2? If you, the kind of calculations that the engineers and scientists are doing now is pennies. I mean, 
zero. I mean, it's inconsequential. It's not even an issue. It's such, it's so small. But well, it's, it's tens of billions. Well, yeah. but, but in the context compared of, to trillions, so you right, don't have to invest it, in yes, energy systems. Right, yeah. it's pennies per ton, basically, right. which is, for all intents and purposes, right. You know, but the problem is, of course, is 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 that that's just the sort of rough draft engineering of all this. It doesn't take into account so many other things, like, as you pointed out, that offsetting the amount of sunlight that hits the planet is not the same thing as reducing CO2, that there's all kinds of problems from allowing the CO2 to continue to accumulate, ocean acidification being one of them. If we do begin to try to block sunlight to cool things off, then, and if we don't cut emissions at the same time, then we have what one scientist calls a sort of Damocles hanging over us, that if we ever then stop putting the stuff up there, because it falls out after a year, I'm talking about the sulfur part, it falls out after a year or so. So if we don't continually put it up there, all of a sudden it all falls out and we have this tremendous rebound effect of warming from all the CO2, the heat of which we've been masking with this stuff. So there's all kinds of complexities to this idea of cost. And one of the things that, you know, I try to do in my book, and that is um, part of the sort of fleshing out of this idea is coming to bigger terms with that. I mean, and, it, and it's not just costs of ocean acidification, things like that, but also this question of how, what is informed consent mean? I mean, if we start geoengineering the planet and shifting around precipitation patterns, that there's going to be winners and losers. And it may be that in some, the, the, the consequences of a sort of geoengineered world intelligently done are less than the consequences broadly considered of a world where we just don't do anything like we're doing right now. So it may be, but, the, but, it, but on the, by the same token, you are going to have, still going to have winners and losers. So, and so, so we're going to have to stop on that. Do you have sorry. a very quick question? Yes, I'm concerned in, as journalists that you get the science debates that are forthcoming on geoengineering. Um, correct, in the sense that in the past, the geo, the bioengineering is a good example of what went wrong. Um, you <coughs> got, in a sense, new information for the old stories, and the old stories were people in favor of science and agriculture <coughs> versus people trying to protect traditional agriculture. So it's the scientists versus the Luddites kind of thing. Whereas, in fact, it's a lot more subtle in that case was ecologists versus agriculturalists or biotechnologists. If we go into geoengineering, the same phenomena, what can you as journalists do to make sure that the debate between scientists isn't collapsed into those who are for technology versus those who are Luddites? I'm, I'm afraid we, we've addressed it in part and you're going to have to read the book and read Time Magazine to, to get that. Um, I'd like to ask Henry Lee to come forward. I want to, uh, again, thank uh, the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy for working with the Belfer Center uh, Environment and Natural Resources Program, particularly Alex Jones, Nancy Palmer, and Edie Hallway. And Henry Lee, who was teaching and has been participating and supporting this whole series, is going to close it out. Thank you. I, I have uh, really three people to thank. One is Amanda Swanson, who has done a lot of the logistic work in putting these together. I'd like to thank the panel, which I think is an excellent presentation. Uh, 
And I would like to thank Chris Russell, who has put this together, came up with it, was the creative idea behind this. Uh, I think it's been a terrific series, and thank you very, very much.